Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Jam, a weekly podcast dedicated to analysing the week's news and top topics through a political science lens. I'm Michael, joined as voice by Jeevan. Jeev, how are you today? I'm very well today, Michael. As I'm sure our listeners might already know, I managed to come home for Christmas and have been here ever since. And as of this morning, uh, my sister-in-law, who is here, has just started her contractions. So there's going to be a baby in this house very soon. So I'm excited. Life is good. Amazing news, Jeeve, and congrats to, to the family. Should we talk about the football? Uh, yeah, we can talk about football. Do you, what, I mean, do you, what would you like to talk about the football? Let's say? I'm, I'm just devastated. I'm not able to gloat in this podcast. I was so looking forward to being able to gloat in this podcast. You know, a Liverpool victory would have been just fantastic for me. Unfortunately for our listeners, well, you know, not being able to listen to me gloat today and annoy Jeevan, the champions of England and the champions of the world are going through a, a rough patch at the moment. But it's fine. We'll be back. I can assure you of that. And there will be some gloating at Jeevan's expense at some point in the future. <laughs> where, did, where, did Liverpool, where did Liverpool win the World Cup, Michael? I forget that. We won the Club World Cup, which is the football's equivalent, football or club football's equivalent to the World Cup, in my eyes. <laughs> You run the, in no one's eyes, in no one's eyes, it's a club world cup. No one plays a club world cup. It's a summer competition. No, we did and we won it. So world. you know, yeah. You or well, you guys have had to care about a lot of other things over the years. Jesus, uh, I will say, look, yesterday's game, uh, it was close. United could have won it. I was by the end, I was like, okay, I probably would take a draw at Anfield. Yeah, to so kind of take my little, and we're still leading. You are still leading, but not for long. To take my Liverpool hat off like for a moment, objectively, Liverpool United is surely the most underwhelming big game in the world. Like it never ever lives up to the billing. Obviously, I, I, I enjoy the times Liverpool win, like we did we won last year at Anfield and the year before that at Anfield. But like the game is always so underwhelming. I don't know what you think, G. <laughs> just, just in case of anyone had forgotten out there. I'm you know what? Big games often are disappointing. They just are. Like, El Clasico is, like, the only one I think has consistently been good. But, like, even the Manchester derby this year was really rubbish. Like, it was a nil-nil draw. This was a nil-nil draw um, because both sides end up being a bit cagey. So, there you have it. Okay, and before we start today's podcast, there's a couple of uh, things we'd like to mention. So, first of all, we do have a winner of our competition. Uh, congratulations to... Sophia Cassano for winning. Uh, you will get a copy of Baza's new book. It is a great book. I guess I've said before, I highly uh, recommend it. And thank you to everyone who entered the competition as well. On that note, um, in the competition, a lot of people have suggested helpfully topics for us to cover. And we also had someone suggest to us to cover Uganda and the political situation there around the election. And we are going to cover that this week. So do keep doing that. And for those people who also made suggestions during the competition, uh, we are going to come around to those as well, uh, as and when we can. So the Indian uh, farmer dispute will probably be quite soon, and the rest of them, depending upon timings and what's going on. Uh, do also, as we said before, do message and get us in touch with us. Uh, we had one listener. We know we have some some younger listeners who got in touch with us to talk to or ask us about doing the PhD. Uh, do do get in contact with us if that's something you want to know more about. We're more than happy to have a conversation at any point in time. And finally, do like, comment and subscribe and do share the podcast if you like it. And if you don't like it, uh, well, if you don't like it, we'll be listening anyway. So just like, like, comment and subscribe. Uh, and, do, and do keep in contact. We do really appreciate it. 
Yeah, just to reiterate that, please do keep in contact with us because we do really, really appreciate your feedback, your your comments and recommendations. We do really take the recommendations on board and we are going to try as best as possible to accommodate those and cover any topics that you would like us to cover on upcoming podcasts. So in today's podcast, we're going to focus on previewing the year ahead. So we're going to focus on US politics and what we expect, particularly from a Biden presidency and the Republican Party. We're going to focus on UK politics and we're going to focus on China. And Jeeve, I guess a good place to start would be US politics, given that Joe Biden's inauguration is on Wednesday. What do we expect from a Joe Biden presidency? So I think... Biden has, has always had this kind of ideal of restoring America in moral and material terms. In the moral terms, going back to kind of Obama's legacy of unity, compassion and hope, but also now clearly as well, restoring democracy in the soul of America. And in material terms, it's really about dealing with COVID and restoring the American dream. If we start off with the material, look, Biden's released a $1.9 trillion plan to deal with covid and put money in American pockets that I think can pass with the 50 votes in the Senate through reconciliation. And that's one of the reasons why those Georgia runoffs were so important. I think it's worth going through in detail what Biden wants to do, or at least kind of a, an overview. So Biden wants to give stimulus payments of $2,000 to each and every American, higher unemployment payment, rented assistance and a ban on eviction, help for the hungry, more money for childcare and tax credits, more money for tax credits in general, health insurance premiums for those who lost their jobs due to COVID, paid sick leave, more money for small businesses, more money for state aid, more money for vaccine and testing, and a $15 minimum wage. If that bill was to pass, and as I said, I think it can pass with 50 votes in the Senate, that would halve child poverty in an instant. That would be the largest reduction in child poverty since Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. It would be a huge moment for America and a huge moment and improvement for children's lives. One thing I would say is the critique of Biden that he was uh, a centrist or a member of the establishment or whatever that kind of critique was, like if being a centrist or a member of the establishment means halving child poverty in your first 100 days, then like, uh, then sign me up basically and like have the words tattooed on my forehead. So that's a huge moment and a huge movement and everyone should kind of on that side should be thankful for that. In the moral terms, in terms of restoring democracy, look, Biden knows the the danger that American democracy is, as does a team around him. They are fully aware of the situation that the United States faces. And one of the advantages we have in the modern world is that we get to see great thinkers and academics discuss how democracies have died in the past. In terms of how to deal with that going forward, look, my view is that justice should be blind and people will be prosecuted, including those of the Trump family. It can't be the case you can hold the law to ransom. That's not how democracies work. And not holding people to account will lead to further danger around the road. So that's where I think Biden's going to go with that. And that's what we should expect to see. I don't expect to see something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after apartheid. People broke the laws that were in existence at the time. And the final and, and I suppose the most important thing is dealing with climate change. The reason why Biden winning the presidency was so important for everyone and now the Senate as well, was that it gives humanity a fighting chance of stopping catastrophic climate change. Biden does believe it's the number one issue facing humanity. It's an existential threat. He had the $2 trillion plan drawn up by AOC and, and John Kerry. And look, you know, the only way you get to pass any of these kind of legislation is, as I said, well, is, is to get 50 votes in the Senate. 
this is why politics is so important. It's why those elections are so important. It's why Stacey Abrams, by the way, has done a huge amount for all of humanity by helping to win those two Senate seats to deal with to deal with climate change in the future. You know, that's for all coming time for all human beings. That's why it's so important to not have our lives destroyed by a warming planet. So that's why I think Biden sits thought I think his next year is going to look like. Mike, what's your view on like what the Biden presidency will be and, and what the challenges he faces in the future? Yeah, so I kind of agree with the idea that he's going to challenge child poverty. I do think he's going to try and rebuild America's ties with its democratic partners across the world um, and its relationship with multilateral organisations following Trump's isolationist approach. I also do think obviously his immediate future will focus a lot on coronavirus. And I think there are talks of him making mask wearing compulsory in America, which is something that's massive in terms of suppressing the spread of coronavirus. And I do think he will obviously adopt a much more progressive and front first approach to dealing with the pandemic. I think often Trump dismissed the importance of, of tackling the pandemic and wasn't wasn't very keen in, in taking scientific advice on board. I think um, Biden will do exactly that and take scientific advice on board and act in accordance to his scientific advice and evidence. Biden's inauguration speech will no doubt focus on unity. And this is a slight concern for me. So I, I'm I'm both impassioned by the idea of, of focusing on unity. I do think unity is important. But the United States has a long history of ignoring the oppression of the most marginalised members of society under the guise of unity. Unity has always come at the expense of black people in America. So, for example, post-Civil War, unity came at the cost of black civil and political rights. I think it also concerns about his message of unity because he's combined these, this message with the notion, the idea that his presidency is return to normality. And in one sense, I understand that. So it's a return to democracy, which is his message. But the status quo in America and the idea that we're going to return to a status quo under Joe Biden is not a good thing because the status quo in America was deeply unjust. I think the Biden-Harris administration needs to make it their, needs to make it their mission to explicitly challenge white supremacy. They need to challenge with zero-sum games with the idea that white people can only progress in society at the expense of people of colour. That needs to be challenged because that was central to Trumpism and that's central to what we why we see so many people buying into Trump's rhetoric is because they believe that Trump has their best interests at heart because he's presented to them this idea that their interests can only be served through the demise of another group's interest in society. And that's the message I think Biden needs to challenge. And he, he, I'm concerned because he he, he misreads Brit, um, America's history at times. So following the Capitol building incident, he speaks about America being about decency, honour and tolerance. And he says, that's who we've always been. But that's not who America have always been. White supremacy and anti-white racism were the founding principles. They remain prevalent today. So I don't think it's, it's it's accurate to suggest that America's always been about decency. I think the message should be America can and should be about decency and it will be under my presidency. I think that's the most important thing and, the, and that's the message Biden should be preaching. I guess the final thing is he's, he's attempted to reach out to Republicans and he's trying to seek unity with Republicans. I'm not actually sure that's a wise decision at the moment. We covered last time in a podcast the idea that the Republicans were an anti-democratic force. They are the party of white supremacy and voter suppression. I think the, the Republican Party right now represents the antithesis to the multi-ethnic America that Biden claims to represent. I think the party represents a force that needs to be overcome and not a partner that Biden should seek to cooperate with. 
And I, I also think he's pleased with his and course unity with the Republican Party having met with with firmer opposition so far. So I actually think at the moment, given the, the fact that the Republican Party have become this anti-democratic force, they are not a, a party that Biden just needs to cooperate with at this present time, but rather to overcome. And his vision for America is in direct opposite and contrast to what they want for America and the vision for America they have pushed for for the last four years, especially under Trump's presidency. So those are my concerns with the Biden presidency. But listen, I do think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. So the twenty, the US election last year, it was a reminder that Trump's rhetoric, unfortunately, his white nationalism is tolerated and celebrated by an alarmingly sizable mem- number of the American electorate. But the vast majority of Americans are repulsed by Trump's politics. He didn't win a popular vote in 2016 or 2020. His approval ratings never, ever rose above 50%, even when the economy was performing well. And this is something for Biden to build on. And I talk about him challenging white supremacy. This is something he can build on. And I think the results in the runoffs in Georgia serves another reminder that Trump's white nationalism is losing ground electorally. So, so Biden really does have something to build on here. And when talking about unity, unity can't come with white nationalists who, who attack our democracy because their vision for democracy is the antithesis of what Biden seeks. But unity can be achieved. It can be achieved, but only with justice and accountability. So those Republican members who were complicit in what we saw on the 6th of January should be held accountable. And there should be, under Biden and Harris, a deliberate attempt to confront and challenge white supremacy. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair point to, to make. I think the, there might be a distinction between the rhetoric and the action. And so the idea of unity there is really about, well, we, have, we are united as Americans, that we should, that we can disagree on things, but we are fundamentally Americans. And that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of healing I want to see. I want to see people who say, I want lower taxes, and that's okay, to believe that and it's okay to fight for that at elections. The problem is, is when you are fundamentally anti-democratic. And I suppose from an electoral standpoint, what you're trying to do is say, if the Republicans remain like this, I held out the hand, the open palm, and they slapped it away, I will take away that 10 to 20% of the vote, which would be enough to, to kind of keep it going and then force the Republicans to change. I, I think that's probably the way in which you kind of, you're trying to gin up some kind of goodwill and hope. But I, I of course, like I completely agree that it, there cannot be any negotiation with white supremacy. And I think the point about reconstruction is a really good point that actually that was the idea of reconstruction. It was a bit like, well, we don't want to confront this very difficult issue. We want to have everyone be okay. And therefore we will just allow the black population to suffer for that. And I think that was a huge mistake, obviously, in American politics. And it is, it is the original sin they've suffered with since their founding. I suppose we should move on to think about the future of the Republican Party and where it sits. And my own view is that I think you said that the party can't survive as a democratic party that wins elections, given the unpopularity of its platform. It can't have massive tax cuts for the rich and expect loads of people to vote for that. And as we've mentioned before, it is the pro-business cynical wing who have used that racism and hatred to take on or to encourage the lonely anti-reality wing and to make them... You know, they had to make them hate Democrats to get these things passed. We are going to see that fight within the Republican Party. My view is the outcome will depend upon the polling. 
we should remember that like Nixon only resigned or was made to resign because the electorate turned against Nixon and wanted him to resign. You know, Republican politicians response to the polling is the reason why Trump wasn't uh, wasn't removed from office in 2020. It was nothing to do with the case itself. It was due to the fact that Donald Trump was still extraordinarily successful within the Republican Party. There is some, you know, hope in that regard. We've seen Trump's approval fall from 38 to 29 percent. Uh, it's fallen from 80 or 80 to 90 percent to 60 percent amongst Republicans. There is definitely chinks in the armor there. We saw Liz Cheney, uh, the third ranking House member in the Republican Party, as well as Mitch McConnell, willing to break with Trump. But two thirds of the Republican Party in the House are still standing with him. Again, the outcome of this fight will depend upon polling and electoral incentives. But one, I think, reason to think that maybe there's no one else in the Republican Party who can replicate Trump's playbook is that we've also seen that those Republican senators who did stand with Trump haven't done so well. So Josh Hawley, the first one to say he'd object to the results and held up his fist famously, his Republican favorability is about even, and he's unfavored two to one in the Republican Party as a whole. The final point I would make about the future of the Republican Party is there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the people on Capitol Hill, they weren't economically anxious. It's clear that they have money and it's clear that, you know, these aren't just kind of the stereotypical view of angry former industrial voter. But for, I think for me, one thing is that like reading Hannah Arendt just before the 2020 election and also sad thinking now in retrospect, that would be entirely irrelevant she makes this point about the mob in nazi germany and she says it's drawn from all members of society but they're socially isolated and the idea is that these are the kind of voters the kind of individuals who who are high-powered lawyers but aren't accepted by the rest of the legal profession so they can be very you know they're very wealthy businessmen but they're a bit uncouth and the rest of the business community rejects them as not being kind of part of their their vision of society. And I think it's it's striking that we've seen that today. And so all the people we kind of see coalesce in this in this group, which may itself also fracture, given that Trump doesn't have a Twitter account anymore, are those who are isolated from all members of all sections of society. And we should remember that as well. And I think that also the point Mike raised earlier, which is really important, which is these are also white identity voters who have started to feel their their kind of heightened status threatened by a multiracial America have been made to believe that is a threat to them and their lives. Yes, exactly that. So they view racial Wait. equity as a threat to their interests, basically, which is a, a massive concern, something that Biden needs to push back on. My concern with the Republican Party is facts. And for unity to be achieved, to kind of go back to the point of unity, we need to all operate from the same set of facts. And I don't think the Republican Party operates, or certain members of the Republican Party operate from the same set of facts that we do. So they believe that some some of them believe the election was was rigged or stolen, and and Republican voters are of this mindset too, or, or a certain majority of Republican voters are of this mindset too. So my concern for the Republican Party is, well, how does how does that party function when they don't even agree that Biden is the president and they've done everything to delegitimize de- his presidency before it's even started? That's my concern with the Republican Party in the future of the party. Like they aren't even operating on the same basis as, as the rest of, the, of American of, of America. So that's my concern, G. Like I, I, we spoke about this before. Like, how do you win over people who don't even operate on the same same set of facts as you? Like, I, I don't think that's possible. I, I don't think unity can be achieved with that group of people. So yeah, that's my concern with the Republican Party. Like they've bought into this alternate reality constructed by Donald Trump, and what we saw on on sixth of January was 
the culmination of this alternate reality constructed by Donald Trump. So they decided to attack Capitol Building and put the lives of American politicians at danger. Like some of the stories you, you hear from American politicians, of like AOC spoke about her life being at danger during the attack on Capitol Building. If these stories are really harrowing and we see that some Democrats members have had of contracted coronavirus as a result of their close proximity with these protesters. So you know, the lives are really put a, a put a, a stake by these protesters. And I'm not sure how and what happens to these voters really moving forward because they bought into reality so much so that they were, you know, willing to attack democracy in that nature. I I I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Jeevan, but it's just something I was thinking about in the aftermath. And I've asked the question a few times to a few friends and, and a few colleagues and no one's really sure how you how you challenge that and it's it's something that's a a big issue because i don't think ever ever before in american history maybe i i could be wrong here but i, I don't think there's been a time where there's been such a division in terms of belief in in facts so like one side believing this story another side believing this story um i, I don't think there's, there's been that division before really maybe, maybe i could be wrong Jeff. what do you think I can't, I can't think of a time there's been a, a division in that sense. You know, maybe there were different opinions about slavery, but I don't think those were, as you said, disagreements about basic facts. I think it was really yeah. about the moral status of other human beings. And I, I don't think it was like the fact that they were, you know, that's a different issue. I think that my understanding and my brief understanding of the literature is that one of which is that taking people on head on in terms of empirical propositions doesn't work. And actually as academics or kind of, uh, well, they call us like weird, weird Western educated liberals, this kind of mindset we're taught that we kind of taught that like things are, are true or false, but people actually attach emotional importance to the beliefs that they hold and therefore it's not enough to just say you're wrong and it's likely to make them put their back up and to retreat further the idea is it tends to be that you deal with these people who believe in this alternative set of facts you know with kindness and empathy and you kind of build a bridge on something completely different and that kind of gives you an opening to kind of slowly talk about these issues and what's going on one of the problems i suppose in in the united states as well as other advanced democracies but particularly united states is that people are increasingly occupying completely different spaces. And I don't just mean that online and on the television, but also geographically as well. We have the situation where you have these huge liberal metropolises who are underpowered electorally and the rest of the kind of Republican voters are spread out geographically. They don't live inside cities. They live in these rural areas. And so we don't even meet Republicans and Democrats anymore. And I was speaking to someone from the States and they were telling me how like now it's very clear and people know who is a Republican and who is a Democrat in a way that wasn't the case eight to 10 years ago. And the separation is now clear as well. So I suppose it's about building, building those bridges between people and ensuring there is some way for us to cohere. I do, on a much smaller level, I do worry about the same thing with UK politics, not in sense of this alternative realm of facts, but in the sense of we sometimes don't cohere or we don't speak to each other. We don't speak to people of different political persuasions because we're divided, not just kind of in our views, but geographically, and also this view that that person is a is a bad person. You know, uh, the idea of calling another human being scum, given the political party they support, is always going to be anathema to me, and it's always going to be abhorrent to me. And I've never really understood why sometimes that is seen as acceptable. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I guess social media does play a role in that. Just kind of speak of the UK context before we do move on to the UK and what we expect from UK politics. I think because what happens is on social media, you follow like-minded people, you engage with you know things posted by like-minded people, and you exist in this echo chamber. So you don't really see views beyond the views that confirm your opinions or your your mindset. So that's that's I think social media has definitely played a role in that. So, Jeevan, to kind of move on to the UK, you provided a nice segue there. What's he expecting from British politics this year? I'm expecting, I'm expecting a slow and steady change. So maybe it's easier if we take it, or if I take from the government perspective first, right? Thinking about Boris Johnson's prospects and the prospects for his Conservative government, I don't think things are going to get better him politically because of the person that he is. You know, the administration reflects the character of the principal, and the principal in this case is Boris Johnson, and we've seen how... We've seen Boris Johnson's decision-making process and his decision-making process has led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people. And the public are starting to see that as well. So we start to see now he is not rated as the, the best prime minister. He is now behind Keir Starmer on that rating. We've seen his personal approval ratings fall. I suspect the reason why the Conservative vote share is holding so high is because there is almost being priced in this idea of a change of leader. I don't see there going to be a huge vaccine bounce for Boris Johnson. Uh, it will take too long and it's already priced in. And we've already seen the kind of the, the terrible decisions beforehand. You know, not just with kind of locking down too late, but sending the schools back for a single day and then taking them back home. People aren't stupid and they've seen these, you know, they've seen these decisions. They know what the outcomes actually are. Brexit as well. Like we spoke with Will Jennings about this you know, the trusted him was already priced in. I suspect that to come back to bite him. We've seen fishermen and we've seen people from Northern Ireland talk about how Boris Johnson promised them no barriers to business. People who supported Brexit were told it would be great and are now seeing that. And I expect to see, like, I don't expect that to be a vote winner for him basically anymore. I think that was already done. That card was already played. I'm expecting to see him relaunch in some way, whether that's like levelling up Britain or building back better. And then I think there's going to be some fights with this chancellor on it as well, because Rishi Sunak is really, it's very weirdly wedded to austerity. And I think that's, you know, it's absolutely bizarre. Um, it's not a debate in the economics profession anymore at all. You've seen the OECD and the IMF and every single huge kind of multilateral economic organization going, that was a huge mistake. Don't repeat it again. Rishi Sunak has said something very strange, like he believes that the only sustainable role for the government spending is 37 or 36 percent of gdp that's such a weird thing to say i've never understood why he said that like there's no reason why the numbers 36 or 37 are special it's a strange belief he's had i think he's really bought into the economic school aid and i think that's the reason why boris johnson's going to want to spend a lot of money and he isn't and we're going to see that fight we're seeing the fight today i think with universal credit i mean i don't understand why he wants to have continual fights with marcus rashford and keep losing on it uh, it seems very, very strange. And then the final thing is, given given I would expect Boris Johnson to decline in relative terms, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see more leading Conservative politicians trying to fill the space in some way and position themselves as a successor. Um, I'm bearish on the Chancellor being the next Tory leader. I'm actually keeping my eyes on Pretty Patel, which I know is going to thrill you, Mike, because you're a big fan. <laughs> oh, Jeevan. <laughs> uh, Michael just loves Pretty Patel. I, I do not love Frizzy Bizarre, just to, just to make that clear on the, on the pod. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, Veggie. I do think, to, to kind of to go back to Johnson, 
the government's reflecting his character as a as a as a leader. Unfortunately, and the best leaders during this pandemic have acted decisively, and empathy has been at the core of their decision making. And they've also acted on the basis of scientific advice and evidence. And to be fair, unlike maybe other populist leaders like Trump and Bolsonaro, Johnson has at least shown reverence to the scientific evidence. But he's acted; he hasn't acted as decisively and quickly as he should have, and he's cost thousands, thousands of lives as a result of this. And that's hard to get away from, really, and it's something I do think should reflect poorly on Johnson, and it's going to reflect poorly on Johnson moving forward. The fact that, yes, the pandemic is a very difficult situation to manage, but Johnson's managed a really poor situation badly, and unfortunately, I expect this to continue because of his character. So Johnson's decision-making at times during this pandemic has been the consequence of his desire to present himself as the perennially optimistic leader who's going to defy the naysayers. So I remember early on in the pandemic, when other European nations went into lockdown, Johnson's message was, we live in a land of liberty. We are not going to lockdown. And what's happened is with all the three national lockdowns, the trigger for the national lockdowns has been the NHS at its absolute limits and the capacity of the NHS being stretched to a point where we actually have to lock down and we're forced to lock down. So at the three national lockdowns, there were all, at every single stage, there were calls for lock, prisons locked down earlier, and Johnson refused up until the point where he was pushed to and he had no choice but to lock down. And this has cost thousands of lives. And unfortunately, I, I do say this with a heavy heart because it, a lot of families have gone through pain during this pandemic. I expect this to continue. I expect this decision making and I expect his decision making to be more reactive and short termist um, than proactive. And think about the long term and the bigger picture. I think the point, again, about the character of the, of the leader is important. And I do think what, what's going to happen is there will be some... His approval ratings are going to dip and it's going to suffer. Um, with Brexit especially, like, that, that's that been done and he's not going to gain anything else from it. Like, if anything, he's going to going to lose political support because of Brexit because now it's happened. Britain has its sovereignty now and I think Anna Menon and, and Alan Wager wrote a piece for the Independent about this. Now what happens is Britain needs to make these public policy decisions and these decisions come with political costs and this is what Johnson's tackling now moving forward this year in 2021. And I take the point about Sunak. I, I, I actually think on Sunak, he's been on the wrong side of the story throughout the pandemic and I actually think eventually what's going to happen is his his approval ratings will dip because I think he's I think his approval ratings are still quite strong, G. You might have a better idea of this than I do. They are pretty strong. Like, he's still done well. And he has been very... If you've noticed, you've barely seen him in the far, past couple of months at all. And that's because yeah. he didn't want to be at the front of any of these decisions. And so he's, he's very much kept himself in the background. It's been very obvious that the guy who was the Chancellor arguing to not lock down is not really appearing on the telly much when the NHS is at capacity... Uh, waiting times in a and I speak to my doctor friends, are at 40 hours and ventilators and beds might run out. I mean, there's a very clear reason why the man responsible, well, uh, the second most responsible for arguing for not locking down is staying away from the airwaves. Yeah, basically. Someone like Matt Hancock, for example, who has, who's less popular, his approval, like his approval ratings probably should be a bit higher. I understand there are some problems with Matt Hancock's politics, but like, given that he's been on the right side of the story throughout the pandemic, like he was the one who was in favour of lockdowning, locking down quite early. And he's constantly been in favour of prioritising the health over the economics. Like that's the right side of the story during this pandemic. And Sunak has constantly been on the wrong side. 
I also, by the way, I have some sympathy for Matt Hancock. I know yesterday was that there was the clip from Good Morning Britain where he's you know being harangued because he voted against free school meals. But I was kind of looking at it and I was like, well, he's a, a minister who has to maintain collective responsibility. The person responsible for that decision is fundamentally not going out there on TV to defend that decision. Like Matt Hancock is just a whipping boy for this government. And I think that's really unfortunate. Like he's been made to be the whipping boy for this government. And I think I do have sympathy for him, the position he has been placed. Yeah, listen, again, there are some fundamental problems with his politics, but I do think that like Johnston kind of bears responsibility for a lot of the bad decisions that the governments have made in this period. And I also think there's a tension in the Conservative Party, which will come to the fore throughout this year. And Johnson's decision-making and his reluctance to lock down at times has been informed by his perennial optimism, the idea that we're going to get through this together. Don't worry, guys, it'll be fine, especially during the first phase of a lockdown last March. But I also think his decision-making has been informed by a level of COVID denialism on the rise of the Conservative Party. And they've been, there's been emphasis on the rise of the Conservative Party to reopen the economy. We need to focus on the economy. The economy is important. And this has been really intertwined with COVID nihilism and kind of not really taking seriously the threat COVID poses to Britain and British society. And this will come to the fore because this lockdown, I imagine, will be extended beyond February. And I imagine the rise of the Conservative Party will become a lot more vocal about their opposition to lockdown. And I'm just wondering, I, 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 I'm I, intrigued to see how Johnson manages that tension, basically. I really am intrigued to see how he manages that tension. I guess it'll be nice to move on to Labour here as well. And obviously Starmer became the leader of the Labour Party last year. And what Starmer has done, and he's done quite well, is highlight the government's incompetence and corruption at times. And the first phase of his leadership was the idea that I represent a new competent politics for the Labour Party. I am not the other guy. I'm, I'm Keir Starmer. I'm this new competent leader. I think that's all fair enough. And what Starmer needs to do better, and I don't think he does a good job of, of this at all is time the, the what with the why so he's spoken about the conservatives incompetence throughout this pandemic and he's focused heavily on the, in the, on their incompetence but i think the message now needs to be why they are incompetent and i do think starmer can point to some ideological principles that the conservative government hold dear that have informed their incompetence and corruption and that needs to be destroyed to the british electorates this government's incompetence and they've you know not had your best interests at heart because of these ideological principles. And then that needs to be coupled with a progressive and transformative vision for Britain. And I think that's a challenge for Keir Starmer. Look, Keir Starmer's rid the mood of the country quite well. So his approach to politics during this period has been constructive opposition. So it's the idea of, I don't, I don't think the British public wants a consistent back and forth between the Labour and Conservative Party amid a global pandemic. So I'm going to adopt the stance of constructive criticism. And I think that's fair. But there comes a point as a leader of the opposition where you need to challenge the government and challenge the government quite firmly on their incompetence. So it's not enough highlighting their incompetence. You need to highlight why they're incompetent and really and really push them on their incompetence. I don't think Starmer has done a, a good job on that. We look at some of the U-turns the government have been forced into. For example, on free school meals, as, as, as Jeevan mentioned earlier, Marcus Drastic advocacy was, was really central to that. The NHS surcharge, that was led by grassroots activists. And we look at the, the A-level U-turn, that was led by public pressure. And listen, I understand if, if the opposition take a stance on free school mores, for example, Johnson's less likely to adopt it than he would if Marcus Rashford did. But I do think as the opposition, 
John Starman needs to make it clear these are the principles I stand for as a leader of the opposition, and I will defend these principles moving forward. And I and, and it's about appealing to a group of and a section of British society, really, um, by by taking a firm stance on these issues. And I, I think that's what Starmer hasn't done quite well. And moving forward, I think that's a challenge for Starmer and the Labour Party. It's, prevents, it's presenting a transformative vision for Britain, challenging the government and incompetence quite firmly, but also highlighting why the government's incompetent. And I think, it's, again, there are really clear ideological principles that the government's hold dear that inform their incompetence. And I think that needs to be the message for Starmer moving forward. What do you think, Jeeve? What's your thoughts on Starmer and the Labour Party moving forward? I'm so I think okay. So Starmer's character as being uh, risk averse, competent, knows how to you know can see himself leading a country, can show himself being able to do that is the hand he's played, and that's who he is. I the best leaders play to who they are as a person. They don't try to be someone else. I think one of the reasons why Ed Miliband, for example, wasn't very successful is because he never really understood who he was and what he stood for. So I think Starmer is being very true to himself. His slow and steady start style would translate into a slow and steady poll lead. I'm reluctant to sit here and, and criticise because, you know, he came into power or was leading the opposition with a 20-point deficit, their worst result in almost 100 years. And he's kind of come up to draw level or even slightly ahead with the Conservative Party. And so I'm reluctant to criticise him too much. I mean, he's put Labour in a position where... They could be the large part of the next election, if not in a position to win a majority at this point in time. So I am I think so far he's done a good job. I'd like to see what he has planned for the year ahead. The second point I would make is that is there are clear things that I wonder if he could have done differently, but kind of play into his, his own strengths. So for example, I think there was like, when it was clear that Boris Johnson locked down after sending the schools back for a day, was there an opportunity for Starmer then to call for Boris Johnson's resignation in the same way that Chamberlain's resignation was called for in 1940 to say, actually, this guy's completely useless as prime minister and I would support another conservative because tens of thousands of people have died. Like that wasn't an option open, but it wasn't one he went for because that's not who he is or what he think is the right call. So look, there have been times I've thought like you could do X, you could do Y, but so far he's you know, he hasn't yet placed much of a foot wrong yet. So that's where I kind of see where Starmer sits. Yeah, I, I guess just to, to t- just to a final point in that, I, I just think he needs to be less risk averse and more front foot, basically. Like that's uh, the challenge for Keir Starmer. And just a final point on UK politics before we move on. Race relations will obviously be an important issue this year as well as it was last year, or at least it should be an important issue. And I expect from the Conservatives a continuation of the, the, their their cultural politics. So they're going to continue to frame Black Lives Matter as an attack on, on British values. So much of Boris Johnson's response to Black Lives Matter in the summer focused on statues and he attempted to position the movement as a as targeting British history. And I still think the Conservative Party, especially under Boris Johnson, are apathetic to the politics of social justice, despite boasting the most ethnically diverse cabinets in history. And they will point to the diversity of their cabinets as a signifier of their commitments to anti-racist politics. But I actually think the opposite might be true. So I actually think what happens is, and there's something called racial gatekeeping. There's a fantastic piece on this. I'm happy to share on Twitter, on the Politics Trump Twitter account, if you if you, anyone wants to have a read of this. But the idea of racial gatekeeping is, is the notion that ethnic minority members of parliament advocate for regressive policies 
against racially marginalized groups because they themselves are members of these groups so they can't be criticized for these policy for these politics or for these policies and actually that's that's my concern with the conservative party moving forward that with members like priti patel and rishi sunak in high posts in the cabinet that they're going to continue to advocate for policies that are aggressive to the lives of minorities. So as we've mentioned, Sunak has been on the side of the economy should be placed over over lockdowns, we should focus on restoring the economy. And as we know, COVID-19 has had a disproportionate effect on ethnic minority communities. And ethnic minority communities and ethnic minority members of society comprise a high number of the key workers. So these are people putting their lives at risk. So really, when so really, Starmer, Sunak pushing for this um, this stance and favouring the economy had a detrimental effect on the lives of minorities. And I think moving forward, the Conservative Party are going to weaponise their minority positions to advocate for repressive politics, and that's my concern for twenty twenty one. Unfortunately, I think Starmer's approach to race relations hasn't been great so far, and I've been underwhelmed by it so far. There's some time for him to change that. I think so far his approach to race relations was quite was captured quite well during an, an, an appearance in RBC in which he failed to challenge and tackle a caller who spouted a flagrant racist uh, conspiracy theory. And I think Starmer needs to do a much better job of tackling anti-black racism, um, both within the Labour Party and society in general. And that's the challenge for Starmer moving forward. Jeevan, I guess it'd be nice to focus a bit on Scottish independence here. That's an issue that might come to the fore following May's Scottish parliamentary elections. What do we think about Scottish independence? My view on Scottish independence is the polls will determine whether there is another vote. And fundamentally, we haven't seen a huge shift in favour of, of uh, I don't know, leave in this respect. But actually, there is there is certainly a lead, I think five to six points at the moment, maybe slightly higher. I expect the case for independence to become weaker and not stronger. And the numbers at the moment who want independence are too low to force the issue as it stands. I don't see this Conservative government granting them the vote. And now we've left Europe, I do think it reduces the case for independence, because it's not the case of leave the union with the United Kingdom and re-enter Europe. It's not nearly as simple as that. And when the Conservatives look weaker, I also expect the SNP to also look relatively weaker. I suppose at the moment, the thing is the SNP or the Scottish people would say we keep rejecting this government and we keep being kind of sullied with it or stuck with it. As and when the Conservatives look like they might be on their way out, I would also expect Scottish independence as well to become uh, somewhat less popular and so in one sense it depends on what happens in in uk domestic politics i I think people will call for it but i don't think we're going to see a a kind of a huge moment of a fight for scottish independence or a referendum at the very least i i would agree that the roadmap to a referendum is unclear and a path to referendums unclear at this stage because the governments have to permit the scottish parliament to hold a second independence referendum I think Sturgeon is going to focus her campaign, and she has focused her campaign so far, on the idea that independence is central to the post-COVID reconstruction of Scotland. And obviously unionists will argue the opposite is true. So I do think it's going to be interesting to see how that story develops moving forward, especially following these Scottish parliamentary elections. I'm actually of the mindset that the case for independence could become stronger as Johnson's handling the pandemic continues to unravel. I think Sturgeon's approval ratings have have risen and have soared during the pandemic, and she's seen as more competent, her communications better during this period. She's seen as somebody who's empathetic, and I think all of those things work in her favour. And essentially, she needs she needs to frame the Scottish independence votes as a vote 
for her or Johnson. So do you want to continue to be under the jurisdiction of Boris Johnson or do you want to be a self-sustaining nation where we have the ability to make decisions by ourselves and also competent leadership represented by myself? And I guess that's her message and that's what she's going to preach to to the Scottish Scottish nation moving forward. And I, I, that's an interesting, interesting story, I think. And I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that develops moving forward. I guess it'll be nice to, to just to focus on the last section of the podcast here, which is China. What do we expect from China in terms of a relationship with the US moving forward, Jeeve? Is there going to be a change in terms of the substance of that relationship? Because I think Trump adopted a very abrasive style in terms of a, 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 his relationship with China and US's relationship with China. But I don't expect that to change much in terms of like there will be hostility between China and the U- and the US. But I think the style obviously will change. Like tr- Biden wouldn't be as anywhere near as abrasive as, as as Trump was. But what do we expect from China and US relations relations? Also, China in general. What do we expect from China in twenty twenty one? I think the thing to say is that the tension will remain, but the source of the tension has now changed. The source of tension under Trump was very much one of dollars and cents. Donald Trump wanted China to pay tribute to the American government in some way to allow to be trade with it. Donald Trump didn't really understand trade. He didn't really understand, um, well, very much, I suppose, in a very real sense. <laughs> Whereas for under Joe Biden, uh, the, the tension now is a wider vision of how humanity should be governed. So Biden is very much, of course, wanted to kind of build this coalition of democracies around the world and believes in human rights. China is, is this authoritarian political system, very much does not believe that. What is important is the Chinese state and the Chinese ideal. So in that respect, Americans' form of leadership of, of the world is one that respects democratic norms, or at least in theory. And China's view of, of China's preeminence in the world depends upon China itself doing well and China going forward. I think from the US perspective, look, Biden should think about what America's strength is. And America's strength isn't about the power of its arm, but the power of its ideals of working with other nations and promoting democracy at home and abroad. And however flawed American leadership has been for the world since 1945, and however far it's fallen short, it was better that came before. Biden will try to rebuild that world of democracies. And one thing I think we've also seen is that China is just fighting on too many fronts with too many countries to be very successful. They haven't really understood the Machiavelli's dictum of like, if you have to injure someone, it should be so severe that their vengeance should not be feared. And China is picking fights with lots of countries across the world at this moment. They're fighting with India over the Himalayan border. They're fighting with the USA on trade and general shenanigans. Australia, they've interfered in their domestic politics. Japan over their Pacific islands. And the list goes on and on. Sri Lanka as well. We've seen them kind of tie Sri Lanka into bondage over this horrendous port deal, which maybe we'll get onto. So look, China's attempt to kind of subjugate in some respects those countries around it, I think in the long term, will be damaging to it. And I think Biden's about to try and rebuild rebuild a world in which actually people prefer American leadership rather than Chinese leadership. What do you reckon, buddy? Yeah, I would agree in the terms of the point of tension being shifted for sure. And I think the UK as well, there is this pressure, increasing pressure on the Chinese government following the human rights violation. Obviously, we, we've spoken about this in, in, on the past in the podcast, the Uyghur Muslim population and the 
genocide that's going on in China. That's a massive story. And I think that's a story that should really dominate the news every single day because it's a it's a genuine crisis and it's something that is is horrific. And I, I do think moving forward, there will be a lot more pressure. And I think the US will play a central role in, in putting pressure on the Chinese government about this. And I think the UK will, will follow suit. And there, I think there's been news that there'll be new rules and banned imports of, of goods suspected of and being used uh, of being produced by by forced labor in China so that's a slight step in the right direction and moving forward there needs to be more pressure on China and a violation of human rights and I also do think China's picking too many battles and you can only you can only win so many battles one thing I would say though is that there are some states that will continue to keep quiet because of trade so like some of the some of the Asian states will remain quite quiet because they depend quite heavily on China for trade. And what's been quite concerning for me with the Uyghur Muslims and their plight in China is the lack of criticism, the lack of anything from some of the Muslim nations. And unfortunately, I expect them to remain silent on the issue too. And that's a massive concern for me. But certainly, I do think this year, and I hope this year, the plight of Uyghur Muslims in China comes to the fore of the consciousness of people around the world. And we do place consistent pressure on the Chinese government to, to to address this issue because it's not something that we should let fade into the background. It's a massive issue and should be of concern to people across the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. Certainly, I, we've spoken about it before. I very much hope to see that kind of, uh, that kind of step up of international pressure. I don't expect to see the Chinese state to kind of be successfully in one sense, challenged or changed it unless they want to change on this. Like that's the problem. They do have an ability. To, yeah, they have an ability to repress their people. Uh, they're very successful at it. I mean, we should remember that the Chinese state is very strong and capable. It did not collapse in the same way the USSR did, and if anything, it looks even stronger today. In a slightly longer term, I suppose so far the Chinese kind of deal with its own people has always been. We will give you rising prosperity and the resurgence of Chinese greatness, but in return, you do not question the political order. One thing is I'm slightly bearish on China's long-term economic prospects for for two reasons. The first of which is for long-term economic growth, it depends upon people being able to invest and set up businesses, knowing that the government or some other armed group won't take it away from them. And the Chinese state currently imprisoning business people, as well as Jack Ma, China's richest man, has currently been missing and hasn't been seen for months. It doesn't make it like a great place to do business and that can damage its long-term growth. And the other thing I would say is also increasing nepotism in China. You know, we remember that Xi, Chairman Xi, is the former son of a prominent communist official. Chinese people might start to get annoyed if they don't believe that that prosperity bargain is being held up to account. And so that is something I would look out for not sure over the next year, but the longer term. And finally, there are some other like short-term economic factors that might be weighing on the Chinese economy. So an over-indebted corporate sector and an aging society that requires kind of more payments to keep them going. You know, there are some some kind of short-term economic problems, also some kind of much more longer term. I don't want to call them structural, uh, maybe fundamental problems with the Chinese economy and the bargain it has with its people. I think that's a really good summary, Jeeve. Should we move on to perhaps our concluding thoughts? So the year ahead, 2021, our concluding thoughts on this podcast. Yes. My, my final thought about the year ahead is that, like, look, one thing about uh, the insurrection at Capitol Hill and the danger America democracy faces, 
and the future for climate change, the COVID-19 performance by governments across the world and how some countries like the UK haven't done well and other countries like the New Zealand have, despite them both being islands, is that it shows how important politics is. Like the statement that all politicians are the same no longer applies, and I don't hear that anymore. So politics is really important. Stacey Abrams winning those two Senate seats to get us have a chance to fight climate change is really, really important. And it's heartwarming to see kind of as difficult as these fights have been, they're going the same way and if they have gone the right way by by five margins. And also there is some other good news in terms of international cooperation and globalisation. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine will be sold at cost to developing countries. This over a billion doses have already been funded. And so that's heartwarming. Like we do realise we have a responsibility to each other as human beings not just within our nations, but across them. And that our future is fundamentally tied together. That, that gives me hope for the future and the way our politics can be and the way we can emerge out of this pandemic. How about you, Eddie? Leah, my final thoughts are that Biden and Harris can represent a new America. Biden's spoken about America being about decency. It's always been about decency and, and integrity. It hasn't always been about decency and integrity, but it can be moving forward. And I think Biden obviously gives America a better chance of achieving that vision of decency and competence and integrity moving forward. I guess my final thoughts is focus a bit on the UK here as well, maybe a, a, a warning for the UK. So I spoke earlier about the culture war the UK government have, have fought following the Black Matter protests in the summer. And we saw these, these calls heeded to by groups of white supremacists who following Black Lives Matter protests the week after they went into the streets of London to protect statues and they ended up having um, um, fights and scraps with the police. And I do think it's important that there is some opposition to the dogmatical politics of this government because we have seen, and the media as well, some sections of the media, put out these conspiratory theories about the pandemic some, in, some, in, some, in some sections of the media and in some sections of the media about Black Lives Matter and anti-racist politics. And I do think there needs to be a pushback on this because we saw the scenes in America, and listen, these scenes were horrific scenes in Capitol Building, but there are there is a similar pattern with, the, with British politics in that there is this culture war, and it's been heeded to by extremist groups within society, and similar tensions are in the UK, as, as we saw in America. And that, that's kind of my, my call for caution this year, in fact, we can't let this this foster in the U in the UK. We can't let it get to what we saw in America, and we need to actually challenge this in the UK as well. And my final thing would be empathy matters, and it matters so much in politics. We often think about strong and stable leadership. Competence is really, really important. But what we have seen during this pandemic is empathy is really, really important as well. And the best leaders during this pandemic have been empathetic leaders. So Merkel and Arden, who are probably empathetic in different ways, but they both spring to mind during this pandemic. And last week we had Rosie Campbell on, who spoke about the traits of good leaders during this pandemic. And the best leaders have been one that have been empathetic, that placed health over the economy. And again, those two issues are very, very intrinsically linked. What I mean by that is you lock down, there is this economic difficulty and decline, but that's actually beneficial for the economy long-term. And I actually think that that's what we need to see from leaders moving forward this year when it comes to addressing this pandemic. And the best leaders will be the empathetic leaders. And unfortunately, in the UK, Johnson's not a very empathetic leader. He's not a very proactive leader. 
And that's going to mean we're going to unfortunately see thousands more deaths than we probably should do moving forward. But empathy matters in politics, and that should be a message that we take importantly in 2021. We don't focus a lot on empathy because it's seen as a, a trait that's probably not that important for leaders. It's more important to be strong and stable and stern. But empathy really does matter, and I think that's something we should focus on in 2021. Right, Jeeve, it's time for Jam of the Week. What's your Jam of the Week? Uh, it's Kendrick Lamar's Triple uh, X featuring U2 of his latest album because I've been listening a lot to a lot that late, to that a lot lately and the line of it that just keeps coming back to me is uh, Donald Trump's in office we lost Barack and promised never to doubt him again and then it goes on about well it goes on about but then it's like a um, an outline of both gun violence and racial inequality in the United States and it's just like a really powerful and apposite kind of statement on American life today. It's brilliant. I do highly recommend it. And that album is also brilliant as well. Kendrick Lamar is great, by the way, like just to kind of go on record. I think he's, my favourite Kendrick Lamar album is Good. Is it Good City Mad Kid? I think that's his best work, basically. Like, And that album, like for our listeners who are into rap music, if you listen to that album from start to finish, like he tells like a story in that album and it's really worth a listen. So I, I am a big fan of, of Jeeve recommending some Kendrick Lamar here. That's fine. I don't think I've heard that. I don't think I've actually listened to that album before. It's a really good album. I think it's like, but listen to it in order the first time you listen to it. I've I will do that. Actually, this is, a, this is a big question before we before we, we kind of sign off here, Jeeve. When a new album releases, right, so you, uh, maybe your, your favourite artist releases an album, what do you do? Do you listen to the songs in order or do you kind of take a scattergun approach and listen to the songs in, in random order? This is a big question for me. I'm really bad I don't listen to albums like that anymore at all. I'm very much scattergun because I'm always doing something else at the same time. I never just sit there and listen to music, you know, and like just do nothing. Gee, what so yeah. But like, but then I kind of I do end up trying to give all those songs a listen to at least once. So yeah, like Stormzy, I definitely listened to the whole thing, and I was like, okay, these are my favorite songs. Fair. I'm like very much when so when Stormzy's album How came out in 2019. Like his summer, his um, album, what's it called? Heavy as the Head. When that came out, I listened to all the songs mm. in order and then I kind of picked out the ones I liked the most. But I, I basically think with albums, a lot of albums that have released recently, well, most albums in general actually tell a story. So it's always important to kind of listen mm. to from start to finish and then like take the scattergun approach afterwards. So there are like with, with albums, like with Stormzy album, like Rainfall is a good song on there, The Crown. There, I mean, there's some great songs in the album, but there are songs that, songs that stick out. Don't forget to breathe. Fantastic song. Mm. Like you have to listen to it order first. And I'm like very, very like I have debates with friends about this who like go into albums and listen to it like in random order and actually never end up listening to the whole album. And it's like you have to listen to the story, guys. The story is like important. But yeah, <laughs> that's basically my thing with albums. Right, that seems like a good place. That's to our takeaway, by the way, guys. That's our takeaway from the whole pod from 2021. Listen to your albums in order in 2021. That's your that's the big takeaway from this podcast. All of the other stuff was irrelevant. That's what you <laughs> that's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. I want you to that's the story. So it's important. Thank you all so so much for tuning in again. Again, please do subscribe, comment, leave a leave a review on, on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please do get in touch with us. We really do appreciate your feedback. So thank you for tuning in again. And we shall see you all very, very soon. See ya.